0: Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. I'd like to um, do a two-parter tonight and next week uh, based on uh, two different discourses um, that are connected uh, from uh, uh, from the Buddha. They're called Refinement of Mind, Part One. And guess what the other one is? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, they come from uh, one collection of suttas called the Anguttara Nikaya. Uh, a little overview of the Pali Canon. There's the, the Majima Nikaya, the Middle-Length Discourses, that thick book that sometimes i brought in, that thick brown book with 152 discourses. It's a wonderful compilation. That's Majima, Middle-Length Discourses. Then there's the longer, the longer Discourses, which is called uh, the Digha Nikaya, and there's a big thick book called The Long Discourses of the Buddha. And then there's another group called the Connected Discourses of the Buddha, Samyutta Nikaya, and they've just come out, or there's there's just been a new edition of two thick volumes. Um, these are all translated by Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's like who's the an incredible benefactor for uh, all students of Buddha Dharma and the Pali Canon. Um, And then there's another collection uh, of discourses. There's five different collections, or uh, uh, Nikayas. Uh, This one, which also has just come out, is um, the title is The Numerical Discourses of the Buddha, uh, the Anguttara Nikaya, also translated by Bhikkhu Bodhi and Yonapanika Tara. Uh, and then there's another last collection. It's kind of the miscellaneous collection called the Kudaka Nikaya, which includes the Dhammapada and uh, you know, verses of the Buddha and uh, um, Nipata, which is a collection of some of the earliest discourses and uh, the Udana and the Terigata verses of the women, verses of the nuns and, and uh, Terigata verses of the, the monks. Anyway, this is from the Anguttara Nikaya. The Anguttara Nikaya—it's it's an interesting one, by the way. Uh, it says numerical discourses of the Buddha. This is just as an aside. Um, these are all grouped according to numbers: um, the chapter of the ones, the chapter of the twos, the chapter of the threes, fours, five, six, up to tens. Okay. Now, and it's not like there's a connection from one discourse to the next, it's just that that's the list, the number of lists in that particular collection. So, the chapter of the fours, for instance, uh, four kinds of happiness, uh, fourfold development of concentration, etc., uh, etc., et four thoroughbreds, etc. This is from the chapter of the threes. Uh, the Refinement of Mind, Part One, and Refinement of Mind, Part Two, and uh, I really like these uh, both of these discourses a lot, and they can be found. I think I'll read it in the um, the uh, more accessible version, which is uh, in this Teachings of the Buddha that Jack Cornfield and Gil Fransdel edited. Um, <coughs> so we'll just do. Uh, The first one tonight. And I'll start by reading uh, the discourse, or at least a good part of it. Here is a simile for the refinement of the mind. There are, my friends, this is the Buddha speaking, gross impurities in gold, such as earth and sand, gravel and grit. Now, the skilled goldsmith first pours the gold into a trough and washes, rinses, and cleans it thoroughly. When the goldsmith has done this, there still remain moderate impurities in the gold, such as fine grit and coarse sand. Then the goldsmith rinses and cleans it again. When the goldsmith has done this, there still remain minute impurities in the gold, such as fine sand and dust. Now the goldsmith repeats the washing and thereafter only the gold dust remains. The goldsmith now pours the gold into the melting pot and smelts it, melts it together. But the goldsmith does not yet take it out from the vessel as the dross has not yet been entirely removed and the gold is not yet quite pliant and workable and bright. It is still brittle and does not yet lend itself to molding. But a time comes when the goldsmith repeats the melting so that the flaws are entirely removed. The gold is now quite pliant, workable, and bright, and it lends itself easily to molding. Whatever ornament the goldsmith now wishes to make of it, be it a crown, earrings, a necklace, or a golden chain, The gold can now be used for that purpose. Similarly, in the case of a practitioner devoted to practice, there may be such gross impurities as unskillful conduct in deeds, in words, and thoughts. Such conduct the follower of the way gives up puts away, lets go, and relinquishes. When one has abandoned these, there may still remain such impurities of a moderate degree as lustful, or angry, or violent thoughts. Such thoughts, the follower of the way, gives up, puts away, lets go, and relinquishes. When one has abandoned these, there may still remain such subtle impurities as clinging to relatives, or to nation, or to one's reputation. When one has abandoned these, there may still remain grasping to special states of meditation. Thus, concentration is not yet properly calm or refined. It has not attained to full tranquility, nor has it achieved mental unification. But there comes a time when the practitioner's mind gains firmness within, settles down, becomes unified and concentrated. With such a concentration, the practitioner is able to direct the mind to states of higher insight. And in the, the full discourse, it then goes on to say those various levels of concentration and absorption and, um, and freedom, awakening. The refinement of mind. <clears throat> you can get from that discourse that this is a process that takes, Time. <clears throat> you might have gone down that list as was, he was saying, you know, "Okay, gross acts, gross deeds." All right, <clears throat> I'm getting better at that one. Too. And then there's those thoughts, you know, and then there's uh, lustful thoughts, or angry thoughts, or violent thoughts. Yeah. And then there's clinging to my loved ones. You know, whoa. You know, that just seems like a far distance away, perhaps, for for many of us, or, ooh, yeah, that was a great meditation retreat I had, it really got quiet in there. Gee, it would be nice to get back there. It's another kind of clinging. So this is a process that he very clearly lays out and understands doesn't happen overnight. You know, I don't know if you ever saw this cartoon. Uh, the the road to enlightenment is long and arduous. Pack a lunch. <laughs> you got to pack a whole lot of lunches. Um, it takes time and it takes patience. Uh, there's a, one one book um, also that it, it's it's not discourses of the Buddha, but its commentaries, it's the classical commentary on the, the Pali canon and the, the, um, uh, the development of heart and mind called the Path of Purification. It's called the Vasudhi Magga, is the, uh, is the uh, Pali word for it, written by this monk, Buddha Gosa, who lived about um, 800 years or so, eight or 900 years after the Buddha, and he was brilliant. He just compiled all the, the, the teachings into this very clear path that a lot of people take as the model of development. It's a very thick book. The first part, there's two parts, is development of tranquility of concentration. Um, and the second part is the development of insight. And it's really thick. Right? This, by the way, I just brought this in case you're interested, is a, a kind of condensation, a new book that's come out um, called Swallowing the River Ganges, A Practice Guide to the Path of Purification by Matthew Flickstein. And uh, it's pretty good. It's, it's pretty good that it kind of lays out that whole big scheme and uh, puts practice in in that context. I want to talk about this process of purification in a way that hopefully would be relevant to all of us. Something to keep in mind that perhaps you've seen for yourself or maybe have sensed, but uh, it hasn't been as overtly named, is um, there's a price to pay for starting to wake up, starting to really be honest and see clearly just what's going on in this mind, in this heart, and in the world around you. And that is, you can't pretend, one, you can't pretend that you don't know any better when you do. And you can't pretend that what you hope isn't there, isn't there. You start seeing all the yuck, all the all the stuff that you know, perhaps you hadn't been aware of before. You know that expression, ignorance is bliss? Well, there's some, it, it's some truth to it, you know, a, a, a very minimal kind of bliss. Um, but a lot of times when people start learning the meditation and learning about mindfulness and being very, very honest... They say, "Gosh, I think I was better off before I started this." You know, all I see is greed, hatred, and delusion. You know? A few, uh, I, I think I, I gave uh, the talk a, a number of months ago about the Buddha talking about before he was enlightened, and uh, he saw all these thoughts of sense, desire, and ill will and cruelty. This is just not too long before he was enlightened and he said, oh, I see these thoughts, and then I see these other thoughts of uh, non-greed, of of generosity, of compassion and and kindness. Yeah, there's all those thoughts of the mind. Well, until you take an honest look, you might be under the assumption that you're just a wonderful, loving person. Um, (laughs) Or you might be under the assumption that you're a no good rotten person, you know, so there's some good news if that's where your inclination is. You start to look and say, oh well, maybe every now and then there's a nice thought in there. No, it goes both ways. But first it's it's kind of humbling to see. And that is simply the fact that you're not You're not confused or deceiving yourself. The more you pay attention, the more you're going to see. But the beautiful aspect or the beautiful um, thing to remember about this process is that it is a purification process. So, in order to purify everything that's in there, it first needs to be seen. Until you see it, there's no way you can you can learn and incorporate and understand and develop compassion and feel all the goodness that's in there. You can't just say, oh, let's get that loving-kindness out, yeah, or how about some real compassion and wisdom, yeah, that's there, and let's stuff all that other stuff down. It doesn't work like that. And in fact, when you open up and say, okay, let's be truly honest, with what this body and mind and this heart are about, the first usually the first things that you see are the stuff that you've been distracting yourself from. But in order to get to that deeper place of wisdom and goodness inside, you need to open up and let it all come through. But it can be discouraging when you start being very... Um, clear about what's going on, and that is part of the process of purification. I want to read to you, uh, I'll read to you just an excerpt right now, and maybe towards the end I think I'll read the whole passage, it's such a beautiful passage. This is from uh, Be Here Now, which was my Bible for about oh, three years or so before I got in touch with these teachings. and. Uh, really, really turning point book in my life as probably a number of people here. How many people were affected by Be Here Now? Just curious. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good club, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, this this piece towards the end uh, is called The Course of Practice or The Course of Sadna. I used to know this by heart. This is like this is like so much it for me. I'll just read this one passage. That pertains to what I'm saying. As you further purify yourself, your impurities will seem grosser and larger. Understand that it's not that you're getting more caught in the illusion, it's just that you're seeing it more clearly. The lions guarding the gates of the temples get fiercer as you proceed towards each inner temple. But of course, the light is brighter too. It all becomes more intense because of the additional energy involved at each stage of practice. We'll come back to the rest of it later. So this process of purification mm-hmm. uh, is both humbling and, uh, and awesome. And one of the first things that we that we see on the grosser level are our actions out in the world. Our words and our actions. They reverberate in our minds. You know? It's one thing to have thoughts that just kind of fly through the screen. Not much you can do about, about them, except honor them, don't get hooked by them, be mindful of them, see their emptiness. But once those words get expressed, uh, sorry, once those thoughts get expressed as words or as actions, the karmic consequence is much deeper. And so we have we say something stupid to somebody you know, because we, got, we were under stress, we lost it with our kids or we said something in anger to somebody else or out of confusion and then you replay it over and over in your head, do you know what I'm talking about, reverberating? That's the karmic consequence of, of expressing it as a word or as an action, it's even deeper. Now, just uh, an interesting thing, I've mentioned this uh, here before, but it's been quite a while and it, it, it bears repeating now. An interesting aspect of the law of karma is that it's better to do something unskillful and know that you're doing it than to not realize to do something unskillful and not realize how unskillful it is. Now, the first time I heard that, I said, wait a minute, hold on a second, you know. If you don't know, you know, it's it's not your fault. And to some extent, that's true. And you can certainly have compassion for somebody who gets caught in doing unskillful acts and has no clue what they're doing. But on a karmic level, it's better to know because until you do, you are continually assuming that this is completely fine and you are going around coming out of greed or hatred and delusion and deepening those responses. Whereas if you realize, if you know better, because you've taken some precepts, or you have some commitment to non-harming in, in in some way, and you kind of feel off when you do something. It's more painful, it's true, but it's better on a karmic level because then you feel the reverberations and you see, ooh, this, doesn't quite feel good, and then you've got an opportunity to investigate and explore and see, hmm, maybe there's a lesson here to learn. When I do this, it feels really lousy. Uh, if I don't want to feel lousy, let's think about that. Uh, oh, maybe I shouldn't do it. In uh, in the uh, Buddhist psychology, Abhidhamma, the, uh, the, the terms that describe this mechanism are two mental factors called hiri and otapam. Hiri, H I R I, and otapam, O T T O P A M, I think it is, which translate as moral shame and moral dread. Okay, that's in the Victorian language, you know. These are wholesome factors. Moral shame is, if you think of doing something, a place inside of you that says, you, I don't think so, it feels a bit off. That's hairy. And otapa, moral dread, is the dread of having other people know what you've done, you know. (laughs) Your reputation is shot. It's an old Everly Brothers line. <clears throat> Remember Wake Up Little Susie? How many people thought of Wake Up Little Susie? When I, your <laughs> reputation is shot. <clears throat> Just how my mind works.
1: <laughs>
0: you don't want people to find out, okay, that is moral dread. Okay, and those are, those are wholesome mental factors because it's a pretty darn good a good thing that they're operating in there. can you imagine if they weren't? We call them we have another word from both of those factors. we call them conscience okay? Can you imagine what this world would be like if we weren't wired up with conscience? It's pretty dicey as it is you know? <laughs> uh, And most everyone you know unless you're very pathologically wounded. Most everybody has that place inside of them that feels it when they're doing something that uh, that's off. So really this process, as the meditation shows, is, is one of deeper and deeper listening to what you know to be true inside. And it's humbling when you listen deeply and you see all the ways that you blow it. But it's also compelling to want to be free of those, those awful feelings inside, the reverberations, the regrets. And so, sila, or good conduct, is really a bottom-line uh, context for this practice of purification. And, uh, in fact, the Buddha talks about it as one of the greatest happinesses of all. It's from uh, another in the Anguttara, in the chapter of the fours, where he talks about the different kinds of happiness, of bl- different kinds of bliss, and uh, there are four kinds because it's the chapter of fours. These are the four kinds of happiness. There are householder; these four kinds of happiness, which may be achieved by a lay person who still enjoys sense pleasures. What for? The happiness of debtlessness, the happiness of possession, the happiness of enjoyment, and the happiness of blamelessness. And that means the happiness of debtlessness is obvious, where you don't owe anybody anything. That is a great happiness. The happiness of of possession means you have what you need. The happiness of enjoyment of your possessions is that you can be generous with others and uh, and share your, your bounty. And the happiness of blamelessness is this sense where you have nothing to hide. And then at the end it says, while seeing with wisdom the wise one knows that compared to the others, the other kinds of happiness, actually I'll just read it the way it it reads, it's a little convoluted, both shares of his happiness, the others, the other three, are not worth a sixteenth part of the bliss that comes from blamelessness. The bliss of blamelessness is... I don't know how the formula was derived, but at least 16 times better than the bliss of being free of debt, or having everything you need, or having the joy of sharing it. And it's, it's true when you think about it, because you can have all the, the bounty in the world, and if you feel rotten about things that you've done inside, you can't really enjoy it. At least to the same extent. It's a limited kind of enjoyment. But if you feel really clean inside, if you feel you have nothing to hide, I love that phrase, the bliss of blamelessness. It just says it all. This is something to shoot for. And the, the beautiful thing also is that over time you start to see things cleaning up little by little by little. Things that might have had intrigue or uh, were, were compelling in earlier years don't have that same compulsion. When I when I think back to before I got into this practice, you know, which I did when I was like 27, I, I got into it. and My early 20s and my late teens and early 20s were just a mass of confusion and unskillful actions. You know, it's like, ooh, God, I can't believe I did that, and that, you know? and then there was that, and then there was that. And it, it's like it was somehow a different person. You know, it's, the, it's the same person and a, and a different person. And over time, you know, there, it's, 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 there's still lots to go. But it's on a whole different level, it's, it's like that purification of gold. And you could probably do the same, probably everybody here could do the same for yourself. How you've changed, how you've grown, how, how things that, that used to hook you don't quite hook you in the same way. And then there's new levels of purification that, uh, that can be explored. Things just kind of fall away after a while. Once you are facing in the right direction, and you have a commitment to keep that unfolding going, things start to change. And if it's held in the context of practice, that your life is your practice, you don't have much choice. You know what are you going to do? Cultivate more greed, hatred, and delusion. You know that—that's the—that's the option. That's the alternative. I, I just got this um, this letter from someone who sat on uh, a recent retreat that I uh, that I was a part of, and she says she's talking about how the Dharma has affected her. And she says the Dharma has completely transformed and altered the course of my life. It has challenged who I thought I was and changed my perceptions and priorities about what I want to do in my life and how I want to be in it. As I reflect, I can't think of a single corner of my being or my life that the Dharma hasn't touched in some direct or indirect way. Isn't that beautiful now it's and she would be the first to say and i've got a whole long way to go but having it in that context it's a joyful path if you have it in the context oh i've got such a long way to go god you know 50 lifetimes for now maybe I'll kind of clean up my act you know and I'll really be happy with myself I get it it's just really discouraging you know who needs that that's not inspiring I, I remember I, I've shared this before going into this uh, interview with Joseph uh, Joseph Goldstein and I'd been sitting uh, for a number of years and I just kind of came to like a whole other level of like of 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 a depth of commitment to practice and, and and the the possibilities and I said wow it's like I don't know what I was doing for the last you know six years but I, this is a whole new ball game you know I feel like I'm, I'm I've just started like I'm a beginner and he said oh yeah I know I know that feeling too and I said you do and he said yeah I get it every time I sit you know I said really he said yeah and you know what I feel like I'm just like on the tip of the iceberg. I I got goosebumps. I still get goosebumps here. It's like we're on the tip of the iceberg and it's a a beautiful iceberg. You can't lose, you know. And if you think, wow, how much more there is to discover, how much more there is to, to grow into, then you don't have to be feeling discouraged about how far you have to go. You can take delight in where you've gone, where you've come from, where you are now, and see, God, even more and more levels of, of, of purity and truth await me, lie in store for me. That's using this path as an inspiration rather than uh, um, a defeat. So, this path of purification. It requires tremendous patience obviously and it requires tremendous compassion for all the ways that you're going to keep on seeing yourself lose it and all the ways that you're going to see everybody else around you lose it and so you, you, once you start looking for confusion you know you'll see it. Most everywhere you look, but it's important to not only look for the confusion, it's important to look for the wholesomeness and for the inspiration and for the growth. The Dalai Lama has a good suggestion, I've shared it here before, that if you must evaluate your practice instead of looking at it from how far you've come from last week or this last sitting, or even last month, he said, if you have to evaluate, look over five or ten year periods at a time and see, have you grown at all? You know, hopefully you've grown some over five or ten years. I think so. And that kind of takes the, the pressure off it being a race. You know, While you want to make the most of the opportunity because it's really a precious opportunity, you don't want to make it a race that you're uh, you know, you're know, you praying, you uh, you don't lose. You just face in the right direction and things start opening up. And what happens as part of this purification process is the development of certain um, forces of purity in the mind called paramis. There's paramis, purity of conduct and purity of wisdom that lead to uh, great openings. Purity of conduct is based on cultivating generosity and also cultivating um, virtue, morality, good conduct. And that has the result of coming back to you in good circumstances and people treating you well and being kind to you. And you probably can think of people who you, uh, whose integrity is inspiring for you. You act a certain way around them And they seem to their their life just seems to um, um, to have integrity on many different levels and good circumstances. And it also results in the opportunity to hear the Dharma. That's another aspect of this parami, purity of conduct. And purity of wisdom is as you cultivate the practice you start to see not only hear the dharma but see the truth for yourself and that leads to the awakening so you need patience you need kindness and compassion and you need understanding that this process is one of purification. And, uh, you know, I love this this line in India. They say, even a 93-year-old saint isn't safe. (laughs) It's just one thought away. You know, oh, look how holy I am. Whoops, got caught. But the beauty of it is, no matter how confused you are, clarity is just one thought away as well. Uh, I'll read this passage that I read in the beginning classes um, that I love that describes this process of learning. Autobiography in five short chapters. Portia Nelson. Chapter one. I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter three, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in it's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4 I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5 I walk down another street. (laughs) And we're spending more and more time in that chapter 3 where she says, I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I see clearly. That's what mindfulness is about. I know where I am. And when she says, it is my fault, it means it doesn't, it doesn't mean to blame yourself. It means, oh, I've got choice here. I don't have to blame the outside world. I can take responsibility and walk around it or walk down another street. And that's beautiful, that possibility. So I think I'll close. I'll close with this, um, and then we'll take uh, some discussion. Uh, this reading of the course of practice about this path of purification. Doing practice can be as much of a trap as any other melodrama. It is useful to have some perspective about the path in order to keep yourself from getting too caught up in the stage in which you are working. These pointers may help. Each stage that one can label must pass away. Even the labeling will ultimately pass. A person who says, I'm enlightened probably isn't. The initial euphoria that comes through the first awakening into even a little consciousness, except in a very few cases, will pass away, leaving a sense of loss or a feeling of falling out of grace or despair. The Dark Night of the Soul by Saint John of the Cross deals with that state. Practice is a bit like a roller coaster. Each new height is usually followed by a new low. Understanding this makes it a bit easier to ride with both phases. As you further purify yourself, your impurities will seem grosser and larger. Understand that it's not that you're getting more caught in the illusion, it's just that you're seeing it more clearly. The lions guarding the gates of the temples get fiercer as you proceed towards each inner temple, but of course the light is brighter too it all becomes more intense because of the additional energy involved at each stage of practice. At first you'll think of your practice as a limited part of your life. In time you come to realize that everything you do is part of your practice. One of the traps along the way is called the sattvic trap, the trap of purity. You'll be doing everything just as you should And get caught in how pure you are. In India it's called the golden chain. It's not a chain of iron but it's still a chain. You'll have to finally give up even your idea of purity if you expect to do it all. Early in the journey you may wonder how long it will take and whether you'll make it in this lifetime. Later that Later you will see that where you're going is here, and you will arrive now, whenever that is, so you stop asking. At first you try, later you do your practice, because what else is there to do? At certain stages you will take your practice very seriously, and later you will see the wisdom of the statement of Jesus, that to seek the Lord Men need not disfigure their faces. Cosmic humor, especially about your own predicament, is an important part of your journey. At some stages, you will experience a plateau as if everything has stopped. This is a hard point in the journey. Know that once the process has started, it doesn't stop. It only appears to stop from where you're looking. Just keep going. It doesn't really matter whether you think it's happening or not. In fact, the thought it's happening is just another obstacle. You may have expected that enlightenment would come zap instantaneous and permanent. This is unlikely. After the first aha experience, the unfolding is gradual and almost indiscernible. It can be thought of as the thinning of a layer of clouds until only the most transparent veil remains. There is, in addition to the up and down cycles, an in and out cycle. That is, there are stages at which you feel pulled into inner work and all you seek is a quiet place to meditate and to get on with it. Then there are times when you turn outward and seek to be involved in the marketplace. Both of these parts of the cycle are a part of one's practice. For what happens to you in the marketplace helps in your meditation, and what happens to you in meditation helps you to participate in the marketplace without attachment. What is happening to you is nothing less than death and rebirth. What is dying is the entire way in which you understood who you are and how it all is. What is being reborn is the child of the Spirit for whom all things are new. This process of attending an ego that is dying at the same time as you're going through a birth process is awesome. Be gentle and honor that which is dying as well as that which is being born. So, we can take some time for discussion about this process. You might, as uh, as you reflect... Just think of some ways in which um, this purification process has worked for you, or ways in which you might get impatient with it, or what you see looking over your your whole journey. Or if you have any other questions or comments from the talk, that's fine too. Testing, testing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you have to put it right close to your lips, and straight on, and say your name to start. Yeah,
1: I'm not very good at what I've learned. At what I've learned, but um, I'm aware that um, I understand that there's two sides in balance, and that perfection isn't all of it. That it, and I heard you talking about. I can't remember now how you said it, but um, the bliss.
0: The bliss of blamelessness. Yeah, and I thought
1: it's not so much achieving—it isn't achieving perfection, but being able to recognize the balance. Is that and and accept and and let it it be the way it is.
0: Uh, what? Say a bit more. What? What you're
1: referring to? Well, um, at home with my imperfection mm-hmm. since I've been practicing and since I've been reading and studying this. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not content and say, oh, well, that's good enough. It's not that. It's just um, that sometimes I can stop hating myself for all the terrible things and just say, well, it just is where I am right now and move from here instead mm-hmm. of constantly. And I still go back. I go back all the time and I feel so bad about the ways that I failed. and. The repercussions throughout life and all that, but but that's how I that's how I am. I'm a human being, and this is where I am and who I am. And and I don't know. There's just something okay about it that helps me be okay here, so that I can move on.
0: Yeah, a- absolutely. Did did you all hear? Everybody here? Hey. So it first requires a compl- a genuine acceptance of where you are and who you are with all your imperfections before you can truly move on you know? because until you if there's parts of you that you're afraid to look at or or are coming down in yourself you've just fallen another pothole you know? so it's, you're absolutely right it's genuinely seeing where you are and just feeling the sincerity that you bring in your, uh, to your life in, in wanting to um, wanting to have a, 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 a life of integrity, for instance, in your actions. And sure, you blow it. You're going to blow it, you know, until you're fully enlightened, you're going to blow it. Until you're fully enlightened, there's going to be judging in the mind too, even at the third stage of enlightenment. So, um, it, you, you've got to, it's, it's pretty important to accept where you are, otherwise, you know, you're, you're, you're doomed. So it's seeing right where you are, and then, also learning each step along the way. You know, when you do blow it, there's this this beautiful discourse that the Buddha gives to his son, Rahula, where he says, you might feel an impulse arise to do something. He says, reflect and see, is this going to lead to suffering, or is this going to lead to happiness? And act accordingly if you want to be happy. Then he says, you might not realize it until you're in the middle of the action. The impulse has given rise to action. And if you can, remember to reflect, okay, where is this leading to? And is this leading to suffering or to happiness? Then he says, you might not realize until after you've completed your action. At that point, reflect. What did this feel like? Where did it lead to? So you can learn from it and act accordingly. Not so you can beat yourself up and and really, you know, hammer yourself down. Guilt has no value in this, in the spiritual journey. Wise remorse, yes. Moral, you know, moral shame, moral dread, conscience, yes. But guilt, not really, not really remorse that is the consequence of unskillful actions, yeah you can reflect on and see, okay, how can I do things differently in the future? So you accept where you are and then keep on moving in that direction. Jade Um, just I feel like I'm in the middle or the some part in in this purification process it's really clear I mean I really know what you're talking about (laughs) and um, one of the things you said way at the beginning was anger something about all these things will fall away and
2: let go of them, renounce them. Mm. Or oh, in
0: the, in the in the sutta. But
2: uh-huh. it doesn't seem like that's how it works for me. It's more like maybe it's more like what she was just saying. It's
0: more like embrace them and deal with <laughs> with that, that. that's part of being human.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh. Yeah, yeah. Don't don't get get uh, tripped up by you know the the seeming. Um, He's, he says, "Oh, you just let go of that and go on to the next one." And he's talking about also a whole lot of work that goes into it, and then it does fall away, because things that were uh, compelling to you are are not are not so. But that's a process over time. Yeah. And the more you try to let go, if you say, "Oh, you know." I want to let go. It's kind of like how do, it keeps on sticking back, you know, and or it feels like a, you know, like you want to let go of a hot potato. You can't get rid of it that way. Letting go doesn't mean distancing yourself from it. It's being really honest and acknowledging what's here and and not being confused by it. Understanding it, understanding the impulses, understanding how it feels so you can consciously choose another way, but it really means coming to terms with everything that you see inside. And not only is that going to be helpful for you, but the more you see it inside of you, the more you start to understand that it's not so different for everyone else. So you're, you're you're looking, this is a process of purification that not only feels good from the inside, but creates a real sense of connection and compassion because we're all in the same predicament. And that understanding is really key.
2: I had, a really interesting Say your name, yeah. I had a really interesting dream this week that puzzled me and it's kind of scared me but I felt exhilarated and in it I visited the underworld where someone very dear to me had died this past year and they were in the underworld saying to me, um, I had been talking about <coughs> Um, attaining an altered mind state and trying to figure out where to do that and um, decided on that I should probably do it in my room. And he agreed and he said, Now understand that your room will become a vampire room and give it at least a week of being in your room and observing all the changes in the room that you bring about to this room. And um, it was strange because, I mean on the outside it sounds like a very scary dream, (laughs) but I felt excited and kind of elated um, afterwards. And just this week I've been thinking about all the metaphor. What I've come up with so far is that the room really is a metaphor for my mind. I live in an apartment, a shared apartment, and my bedroom is my only private space. That's my mind and Mm -hmm. thinking about the things that travel in and out of my mind, and everything you've talked about with the the process of purification. That's kind of what going into the dream. I was wanting to purify myself Mm -hmm. by sitting in this room, Mm -hmm. and. The idea, just hearing you talk about the death and the rebirth and something about me really having to sit in this room and realize, to some degree, I've created all this mind chatter that is maybe vampiristic to my soul, you know, Mm and that to move on. I've got to um, just come to terms with it. Mm Yeah. And I'm just wondering if you have any, any other ideas about any metaphor, anything else that yeah. might come to your mind. Yeah.
0: Your well, mind. you describe the, the spiritual journey in, in Hinduism. The uh, the goddess Kali. Have you ever seen uh, Kali? You know, with blood dripping and skulls everywhere, and you know, just really gruesome. Kali. That's Calcutta. Is is Kali's City, the name uh, 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 named after Kali. Kali is is a very important being. She, you feed all the demons, you know, and Kali becomes Durga, this this uh, pure, enlightened uh, expression of uh, you know of the light. You need to eat your demons, digest them well, have them have really um, understood completely and then the other side is is freedom just like in the path of pure, in the path of purification there is different degrees of insight where you have to go through you know in the classical model fear and danger and disgust and a whole lot of things and then the urge for deliverance and then equanimity and then and then enlightenment we at so, some time sooner or later, need to confront our the places that frighten us. And often, it's so so often that it's by directly dealing with our fears that we come out the other side. Now, that's what happened to Ramana Maharshi, who was freaked out at when he said, oh, I wonder what death is like, and he, he scared himself at, at the age of 17 and hid up in his, in his attic underneath, and he was terrified, petrified, and came out the other side. He was, he was a fortunate, graced being, fully awakened after that, after his encounter with deep death. Or in modern, a modern uh, um, uh, analogy, mythological analogy, is um, Star Wars when uh, Yoda is teaching Luke Skywalker, you know? You remember that? It's the, that's one of the best, right? And there, he's got to confront all his demons. Remember, he goes in that last, that last thing, he's, he's encountering this incredible, you know, monster and, and it doesn't look like he's got a chance, and that's the way through to becoming the Jedi Master. You know? So, in, in so many different ways, the hero's journey you know that's Joseph Campbell. The whole thing is is about that. So your dream is right on. It's an archetypal dream, and when you that's that's where you get a sense when you're really up against your demons. Instead of thinking, "Oh my God, how did I ever get myself into this mess?" It can be, "Wow, here it is. Maybe I'm I'm really ready to meet this, meet my demons and." and come on to a whole new level of understanding. It's, it's all in the attitude that you have towards it. Thanks. Okay, okay so um, let's, let's close with a, a loving kindness. And I would just really encourage you, if you happen to be somebody who gets impatient about your spiritual journey, to both have this in mind and have that sense of patience, that you're, if you're facing in the right direction, and also to make use of the time and not just think, oh, well, you know, doesn't matter, I'll just, you know, take a little baby step and, you know. It's both. It's, it's not being complacent. It's giving your whole heart to it and being right where you are. They both come together. Okay, so... Feel your heart, feel your goodness, feel your sincerity that would bring you to share this Thursday evening together with us. Breathe in through your heart center um, benevolent energy from around you. Breathe in through your heart and fill your being with it. And as you breathe out, surround yourself with that loving energy and extend it outwards. And send some kind thoughts to yourself. May I have happiness in my life. Just wish that for yourself. May I feel love inside and express it well. May I open to all the peace that's inside may i have the highest peace and then extend these thoughts to include everyone here the people next to you in front and behind you and in the room and then radiate it out throughout this neighborhood and area throughout the state and country, throughout the continent, and all directions all over the planet to all beings and beyond. As I want to be happy, may all beings be happy. As I want to grow in love, may all be touched by the power of loving kindness. As I want peace, may all beings have peace in their lives. May all beings everywhere be happy. Thank you. Have a good week. See you next week for part two.
1: Talk was given by James Barris at Berkeley Sitting Group on March 22, 2001. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed.
0: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit
1: dharmaseed.org slash donate.